Glad that you're here. We are in the Holy Week events leading up to Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. This is actually, tonight is the first night of Passover on the Jewish calendar. And so this will lead us into uh, what, we, what we often call the Passion events, which would include the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to be taking communion together. And this hopefully will help prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday morning. Good to have the youth with us as well. So welcome, you guys. We're glad that we're together tonight. I do want to take a moment to honor uh, Dave Richards. Uh, Some of you have been hearing the updates on Dave, and Dave did go home to be with the Lord uh, today around 4 p.m. And, uh, you know, when a saint dies, Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And so it is a precious thing when someone dies in the Lord because we know to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And I love that 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says that we're at home with the Lord. You know, whenever we go somewhere, maybe it's on vacation or whatever, it's always good to be home. And uh, to know that heaven is our home uh, is a beautiful thing. I have a long history, and if, if JT and Marilyn and the family are watching tonight, a long history with the Richards family back to the days of Little League Fields and coaching JT along with Nathan. Um, I, I was, Nathan, you didn't hear this probably, but I was walking with JT a little bit outside the hospital, and he said, oh, what I wouldn't give for, uh, to get one of those days back when we were in Little League, and the, the days were simple, and all we worried about was having fun and playing baseball. But anyway, things change, we grow up, and, uh, you know, we have to face our mortality and face the ups and downs of this life, but we don't face it alone. Uh, We face it as the body of Christ. We face it as the kingdom, uh, the citizens of the kingdom of God, and we grieve with those who grieve, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. So tonight, we're grieving with a family that is part of us. Um, Oftentimes, when a saint passes away, there's no words to really capture, you know, what we're supposed to say. But one thing that we, we say is, you know, our hearts break when, a lo- when there's a loss of a loved one, but we stand on the promises of God together as well. Amen. And that hope we have collectively is the anchor of our soul. And I know as I look around the room, a lot of you have lost loved ones. You've been through, you know, the ups and downs of these realities, but We stand together, and so I just, as we open tonight, I'm just going to say a prayer and then pray over the Richards family if you join me. So Father, uh, thank you for the time of music. Thank you for the time of fellowship. Thank you for hugs and handshakes and just to feel a sense of belonging here in this community. Thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus. I lift up the Richards family to you that you would be their shelter, their refuge, their strength, their peace their hope. I pray that you would, your presence would be very tangible with them as they walk through the grief, but as they grieve with those, as those with hope and not without hope. May that hope be their anchor in the storm winds of loss. And I pray that you'd walk them through this and that we would love them through it as well. Thank you for all the faithful saints here who have loved this family, prayed for them. Uh, What a testimony that is to the community that we are in Christ. Tonight, may you have your way among us. May you do what you want to do, Lord. 
And we lay it at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. My plan tonight was to do a little in-depth teaching on the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to do a little redirect, and I'm going to kind of hit on uh, examining ourselves. And we're going to end up in 1 Corinthians 11, not for an in-depth uh, exposition of that text, which is our normal way of doing things where we go verse by verse and we really break down verses and look at them in depth. Tonight, we're taking a break from the book of Hebrews, which we've been going through uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse on Wednesday nights. And I'm going to bring a theme to you that has to do with this Holy Week about asking God to search us and clean out the junk in our hearts, the leaven in our hearts, to use a Passover image. We're going to start in Psalm 139. So let's turn over there in our Bibles. Psalm 139. And we're going to look at a prayer that, where David prayed something. And I, this was on my heart as we were in the prayer room. And um, I had a chance to sit with Scott Furrow, uh, who hosts Live from L.A. on KKLA. And they were doing Six Steps to Easter. And that's now on KKLA's website, at kkla.com. If you want to check that out, it was a video interview. Lasted about 20 minutes or so. My part was to look at the examine piece as we lead up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And the verses that they gave me were these verses, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, which is the very end of this great psalm. And this is what David prays. He says, you could call this like a benediction, a closing prayer. He says, Search me, O God, Psalm 139, verse 23, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, there's been talk when people looked at these two verses, and I think even a book came out about dangerous prayers in the Bible, like, uh, a prayer that you would pray that would make you vulnerable, make you open yourself up to God. It would be a really kind of a raw, honest prayer. Uh, and are you willing to pray raw, honest prayers? And not something like, search them, O oh God, but search me, O oh God. I find it much e easier to sit in the stands and critique everybody else. I don't know about you. It's easier for me to say, search them, they're the problem. Lord, would you just fix all those people over there? And I'm sure most of our problems would be solved in this country, dot, dot, dot. You can fill in the blanks. But David doesn't pray that. David says, search me. Would you be willing tonight to pray a prayer like that? Perhaps you pray that all the time. Maybe you've never prayed anything like that before. But that's a biblical prayer. That's a prayer of David, a man after God's own heart. What makes a person a person after God's own heart? Apparently, one of the things is an honest assessment of one's own heart and to ask the Lord to search. Uh, you, could, you could imagine a searchlight where it comes in and investigates. Uh, I, I believe, if I recall correctly, some of this original language has the idea of separate the wheat from the chaff in these verses, you know, take out the junk out of my life. And David says, search me, O God. And notice his focus. He says, and know my heart. He says, try me. You know what that means? That means test me. That, that means I'm inviting you not only to search my innermost being, but I'm asking you to test me. You ever prayed a prayer like that? 
You ever ask God to test you? To see what's really inside of you? To see the stuff that you're truly made of? And I want you to see something that might, you might find comforting. On Sunday, I'm going to preach about worry as we continue to move verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And I thought it was apropos, given the fact that we'll probably have a lot of visitors and worry is a big deal for most people in our world. And notice that after David says, search me and test me, he says, know my anxieties. Because we all have them, right? And, and I'm going to talk about on Sunday whether worry is only a sin or whether we have, some of us have more tendencies to be kind of worried people. Are we born that way? Some of us are just born biting our nails. You know, <laughs> some of us are born maybe a little bit more pessimistic or whatever it may be. But he says, I want you to look inside and know what makes me anxious. And I think the implication is, and get that out of me as well. If there's stuff causing me anxiety and it doesn't belong there and you've told me not to worry, then would you try me in that area as well? Would you see, look at 24, if there's any hurtful way in me, not in them, in me, would you see if there's anything that could hurt my testimony, my walk with you, the people I love the most, if there's anything that would be hurtful in me, I think the implication is, would you root it out of me? And rather than me going the hurtful way, would you lead me, by contrast, in the everlasting way? What's the everlasting way? Well, the everlasting way is always God's way. It's the eternal way. He is the everlasting God from, you know, um, uh, generation to generation, he's God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. Emphasis on the, the last word in the sentence there. Lead me in your way. My way is probably going to be the hurtful way. So lead me in the healing way. Lead me in your ways. Lead me in the everlasting way. Purge me of sin, O Lord. When I, when I had the privilege of doing this interview, I made a discovery as I was kind of sitting in this text. And I discovered that David opened the psalm the way he closed it. I want you to look with me at Psalm 139, verse 1. This will ring familiar to many of you. David says, O Lord... You have searched me. Now, he invites God to search him in verse 23, but David already knows that the Lord has searched him and that the Lord knows him. The invitation that David has prayed is simply a conclusion from what he already knows to be true. You've searched me and you've known me. What does God know about me? You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. He talked about anxious thoughts in verse uh, 23. He says, you know my thoughts. You know when they're solid, when they're anxious, when they're scattered, whatever they might be. You know my thought from afar. You scrutinize. That's the idea. You examine my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted, not with just some, but with all of my ways. Notice how detailed this is. Even before there's a word on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. We, we might wrestle a little bit with whether that's a positive or a negative, being enclosed by God behind and before, but you're gonna see it's a positive because I think it's more like a hedge language, a protective sentence, because he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it, or we might say it this way, it blows my mind, it's hard to figure out how it is that you know all these things but I think the link between, if you were to imagine a bookshelf with bookends and you had the opening verses of Psalm 139 and then the closing prayer, I think what you could say about the opening verses is that they're built on God's intimate knowledge of David and thus, in light of that, he can trust God to pray a dangerous prayer because God already knows him, loves him, knows how he thinks, knows when he gets up, knows when he sits down, knows when he rests, knows when he's anxious, knows when he's not, knows when he has a funny thought, knows when he doesn't. And in light of that trust relationship, the God, as Jacob put it, who's been my shepherd all of my life, I can, I can pray a prayer like, search me, O God, and know me. Can I challenge you that in the next day or two, this would be a prayer of yours? that you might reopen your heart if you need to or open it for the first time or maybe open it uh, as you do regularly and seek the Lord. Now, that's the backdrop. I'm gonna take you over to 1 Corinthians chapter five and show you just two more texts, one in chapter five and one in 11, and then we'll, we'll get ready to do a little worship and communion. So in 1 Corinthians chapter five, Paul's addressing a New Testament church and he's going to use Passover imagery to make his point. I'm not going to go through all the verses in detail, but I'll just tell you that if you've ever studied this section before, something really ugly was happening in the Corinthian church. There was an incestuous affair, an adulterous affair going on between a man and his father's wife. And that would be, it wasn't his mom, but it was, I guess, maybe a second wife. It was his stepmom would be the conclusion. And he was with her in a relationship uh, where the church should have been appalled by it. They should have dealt with this guy quickly once they heard of it. But they were almost like celebrating it, like they were saying it was no big deal or they could just give grace to the person. It didn't really matter what kind of choices we make. That's what we're hearing today, right? We don't, we don't want to comment on anybody's moral choices, but... Paul had some pretty severe words. He said, uh, I've decided, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, to deliver such a one, this man that was doing this, to Satan. Pretty light language, huh? For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, the day of the Lord Jesus is always in a uh, description of the return or the second coming of Christ. And so it would seem that Paul is saying that it's gotten to a point where this has gotten so bad that I made a, a decision to deliver this guy to take away the hedge, if you will, because you all know what we just read in David's words were that God has, had enclosed him on the front and the back, if you will. He had put a hedge about him. And I think that we could safely say as believers that we have some sort of hedge around us uh, where even if Satan gets to us, he's on a leash, right? 
and he can only go so far and we're, we're gonna go to heaven when God determines that and we'll have some times when we're tested and all of that, but uh, God will let us swim in some consequences too if we make bad decisions. But here, my point is that Paul has turned him over, but it's not for his ultimate destruction. Verse five says that he may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that, this is not difficult. These are one of the, this is one of those tougher verses in your Bible, but there it is. Now, he, he says to the church, you're boasting, and he's talking about them boasting about giving grace to this immoral situation is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? When Jews are getting ready for the Passover, and if you've ever been involved like in a Seder, which some of you may be going on, how many of you are going Saturday night to Beit Shalom's? It's a pretty cool thing, and they read through the whole story, and it's great. And one of the things that they do as kind of a symbolic thing in uh, Seders is they, they will go and look for leaven in the house. Leaven would be anything that, uh, you know, like a piece of bagel where it's, uh, you know, it's had yeast in it and bread has risen is basically all it is. So they might plant some things and the kids go looking for, it's, it's like a game that they do. And they take, uh, my understanding is they would take a candle, a wooden spoon like you would cook with and a feather and they would go look in the corners of their house for little pieces of leaven. And when they found it, they would take the feather they would sweep the, the little pieces of bread in, onto the wooden spoon and wrap it in a linen cloth. What's interesting about that is that Jesus Christ is without leaven. He took the leaven of our sin, was wrapped in a linen cloth. And they'll, they'll take that and they'll burn it in a communal uh, bonfire uh, in their community. And so the sweeping out of the leaven is always a thought that comes to a Jewish mind in light of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all of that. So Paul picks up on that imagery and he says, he says, don't you know that a little leaven, all it takes is a little bit of yeast to make the dough rise. Well, it, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It, it'll spread. If you let little things in, little compromises, it will spread. So what do you do? Clean out the old leaven, verse seven, that you may be a new lump just as, in, as you are in fact unleavened. In Christ, God's no longer counting your sin against you. So in your standing before God, you're seen as unleavened, and here's why. For Christ, our Passover, he's our Passover lamb, also has been sacrificed. Because of what Christ did, we can be seen without the stain of sin before a holy God. Praise the Lord. That's what we rejoice in. We want to live like that in light of that. And Paul says, therefore, since that's who you are, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, uh, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, like what was going on in the church there, but with the unleavened bread of what? Of sincerity and truth. Oh, Lord, let there be truth in the inner parts. Paul says, go ahead and celebrate the feast. Go ahead and celebrate the Passover, if you, if you will. Maybe he's pointing to the, the Jewish crowd in the church or maybe even the Lord's Supper where we reflect on the Passover. But he says, don't do it with the old leaven. Get that out of your life. Do it sincerely and do it in truth. Now, flipping over to 1 Corinthians 11, here's the final text I want to share with you tonight. And we're 
thinking about examining. Okay, so we, we looked at David's prayer, and then we looked at the image of leaven and kind of what that means and how we might sweep that out. So I would just say this. If you were to pray, Lord, search my heart, try me, remove hurtful ways in me, that would include anything that would be kind of like that leaven image, anything that would puff up, hurt, stain your life, that kind of thing, right? Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's talking to that same church, and he is addressing these famous words. You guys have heard these if you've been in church more than once. It's found in verse 23, and it reads this way. For I received 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three from the Lord, Paul writing, that which I also delivered to you. Received and delivered is kind of the language of passing on truth. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to give you just some things to think about in terms of this standard communion address. Some believe that what Paul wrote here is the earliest, what sometimes they call tradition, but tradition simply here means what was orally spoken and then finally made its way into the written Bible. Uh, this may be the earliest record of Jesus' words at what we call the Last Supper. Uh, 1 Corinthians is written around 50 A.D., and Matthew may be a little earlier. Some people think Mark's a little earlier or around the same time. But this may be the first recorded statement of what Jesus said at the Passover meal or at what we know as the Last Supper. And if you guys have been at Living Truth for a while or really any evangelical church for some time, you'll, you've heard a pastor share that before, right? You've heard him quote those words, and that's really what, where this comes from. Just a, a few highlights about this section. Uh, first of all, you can see that Jesus instituted these things on the night that he was betrayed. It was a rough night for the Lord. Judas betrayed him. Peter ends up denying him. Everybody gets scattered that night. But Jesus was thankful. It says in verse 24, when he had given thanks. So one thing I want you to know is that when you take communion, communion is a celebration. And I think that's the first thing you need to know. Whenever you take the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that he invites you to his table and he wants you to be thankful. So I think you can come to the table tonight with a thankful heart, amen? Uh, he gave thanks. That, those two words, he gave thanks, is a single Greek word called eucharisteo, it's where the Catholic Church gets the idea of the Eucharist. But it's the idea of the, the bread uh, it, in, in that kind of setting, but it actually means to give thanks. That's the Eucharist or the Eucharisteo. So it's a celebration, if you will. He says, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Note this, do this in remembrance of me. Communion is always a commemoration. That means we remember what the Lord did. We're thankful to God for the Lord Jesus Christ and we remember him. So when you come tonight, if you're gonna come to the table tonight, I would strongly encourage you to reflect on the cross. And sometimes I, I feel a little bad as a pastor because we, we will we'll put communion at the end of the service and sometimes I feel like we're rushing a little bit. And some of you may have felt that way as well. And we take the communion elements at the end of the service and uh, I, I sometimes feel like maybe we haven't slowed down enough uh, to really reflect on what this means. But this means that Jesus Christ died for us and we commemorate, we remember him. He goes on, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It looks forward to the second coming. It's gonna look back, of course, on the events of the passion, but it also looks forward until he comes, the end of verse 26. Communion, when you take the Lord's Supper, is a proclamation. So we are, we give thanks. It's a celebration. It's a commemoration. And whenever you take the Lord's Supper, you need to know this. You are making a proclamation. You are preaching, in one sense, when you take communion whoever may witness you, someone sitting next to you, someone that you say to them, hey, we took communion today, whoever you may share it with, you are making a proclamation when you take communion. You know what you're proclaiming? You're proclaiming the Lord's death. Look at the verse, until he comes. You're saying Jesus Christ died on the cross, I believe it, and I believe he's coming again and I'm going to continue to take this as often as I do it uh, until he comes. I'm, I'm making a proclamation. And this is the last word I want to give you. With anticipation, if you're taking notes, you, you take the Lord's Supper anticipating the Lord's return. So I hope that those words will help you when you think about celebration. He gave thanks when you think about commemoration, you think about anticipation um, and proclamation. I, I think I messed up the order there, but I think hopefully you've got it. This is what we're to do when we come to the Lord's table. You're invited to celebrate, and it, and it is such a celebration, isn't it? Our sins were paid for in full at the cross. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God's not seeing me as leavened anymore, full of sin. And I'm so grateful because his son took that. He absorbed that, if you will. He became a curse for us at the cross. He took the wrath of God. Praise the Lord. But Amen. But I don't want to forget. I want to remember what he did for me. I want to anticipate that he's coming to save us a second time. He's coming to return and set up the kingdom, if you will, in its fullness and I want to know that I'm making a proclamation when I take the Lord's Supper. Now, here's the problem that was going on in the Corinthian church. And some of you know that these, these famous verses are said in this kind of ugly setting, and some of you don't. Here's what's going on. Let me just sketch the picture. 
So in the Corinthian congregation, a lot of them came out of the Greek pagan world, and they were used to all these class divisions. And the wealthy were treated one way, maybe you had servants and stuff, and when you ate a meal, your servants just basically watched you eat, and it was just whatever, you know. You, you didn't worry too much about the poor if you were wealthy, and maybe if you were poor, maybe you had some ill feelings towards the rich or whatever. But all these Corinthian people get saved, and now they're one church, and they meet in a home. There's no church buildings in the first several hundred years of the Christian church. They all met in houses or maybe outside or something like that. If in Jerusalem, maybe in the temple courts or maybe in a synagogue or just outside of it. All right, so all these people are in a home. Probably, who do you think may own a home big enough to host the church in the first century? Probably somebody who's wealthy. And so they would, what they would do is they would have these first century potlucks a little different than our potlucks. In the ancient world, they had basket dinners. And what they would do is they would pack a meal for whomever was going to the church service. And they would, sometimes they had to walk to get there. So it could be a distance away. So they would pack a meal. And then they would kind of set a time. And they would say, hey, we're all going to fellowship and eat together. And maybe we'll worship a little bit and sing. And then we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about scripture. And we'll end the night with the Lord's Supper. And they would take the bread and the wine. And you'll find out here that it was literally real wine that they drank, at least in this Corinthian setting. All right, so people would come and they'd have their basket lunch and they would prepare. And here's how it worked, where you might go to a potluck and maybe you cooked a big thing of mystery chili and you're hoping that it doesn't kill any of your brothers or sisters in Jesus' name. Well, and you would intend to share it well, in that time, what you brought was pretty much for you and your family. It was a basket prepared for you. So people were eating, and maybe somebody brought some chocolate chip cookies, and uh, this is kind of like how ugly it gets sometimes out at the donuts. Yeah, have you guys seen that video where they're showing, what is it, the chimps or something? <laughs> they're grabbing all the donuts. It's kind of like that. Anyway, you grab the maple bar, you lose points in heaven. Well, we won't go there. Anyway, so, so what was happening is, uh, let's say everybody showed up and the rich people uh, packed a five-course basket meal with a little bit of tri-tip and some garlic bread and potato salad and maybe a little bit of regular salad. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And poor people, maybe they walked in there with one loaf of bread to share among a family of six. And so the... The rich people are over there eating up a storm and the poor people are, you know, splitting off a piece of bread and, and nobody's sharing with one another. There's class divisions. But it may also be that the poor people had to work, so they got there a little later and maybe whatever food was kind of communal food was gone. And not only that, but people who were at the meeting, some of them were drunk, they had eaten all the food. They had gotten drunk. And people, hey, welcome to the church service, man. Good to have you, you know. And sadly, what was happening is class divisions and pagan types of worship. In the pagan world, they had a, the wine god, his name was Bacchus. And they thought if you ate raw meat in the temple of Bacchus and drank a bunch of wine and got intoxicated, you could get better in touch with the God. 
Well, some of the Christians taking these pagan practices moved them into the church. And so they saw the poor people as second-class citizens. They gorged too much on the food and the wine. Some of them were tipsy or drunk. And this is a first-century church service. And Paul's like, what in the world is going on here? Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. You may call that the Lord's Supper, but that's not the Lord's Supper. Because what does the Lord's Supper proclaim? The death of God in human flesh who so loved everybody else, he laid down his life. And you can't wait for people to show up. You're gorged on the food. There's nothing left to eat. You're drunk on the wine. And you call that the Lord's Supper? And Paul says, what? You gotta be kidding me. That's not proclaiming the gospel. That's proclaiming something else. And Paul says, I'm not gonna praise you for what you did. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread... And remember, the, these uh, love feasts would turn into a time of communion. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, and he's talking about the elements of communion that we know, of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, what's the unworthy manner? Just what he described in 21 and 22. People who didn't care about others, people who had um, looked down on other people with class division, maybe made fun of the poor, abused alcohol, he says, if you eat the bread or drink the cup in this way, if it leads you into a time of the Lord's Supper, in quotes, and this is what you've been up to, well, then you've taken the elements in an unworthy manner, and this is what he says. He says, and you'll, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, here's our key word. But a man, and that would describe a man or a woman, anybody who's there, must examine himself, and in so doing, our key word tonight was examine. In so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. First, do a little examination. Do a Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, examine me. Try me. Test my heart. Is there anything hurtful in me? Now, this extreme example in the first century church might be far from our minds, right? We might say, never would I show up to church this way or, or with this attitude. Many years ago, I was a young preacher and they had asked me to do the communion time. We took it every Sunday on an Easter Sunday. And it was one of my first opportunities to really share for a while and lead us into communion. And I started you know, sharing a little bit of scripture and it was gonna lead us right up to the time of the Lord's Supper. And I noticed that there was a little commotion happening a little bit to the preacher's right about the second or third row, and and guy stood up for a minute, and then he sat back down, and then he stood up again, and he looked in the back of the church, and, and then he sat back down, and there, shh, people were trying to shh, and I'm trying to talk louder, and the Lord said, and <laughs> kind of eyeing this guy, and finally, it seemed like an eternity, the guy stood up, he looked to the back of the room where one of our ushers was, st was standing and he said, tell that guy to stop looking at me! 
And I was like, oh, great. My first opportunity on an Easter Sunday. And there's lunatic man in the third row, right? What in the world is he doing? So, <laughs> for, you know, when there's a distraction for a while, you try to talk over it until it's no longer possible. And when he did that, I went, and I don't even know what I was thinking at the time, but I went, sir, sit down. <laughs> and he went, sorry, pastor. I wasn't even a pastor at that time. And he sat back down kind of sheepishly. And, you know, everybody's like, ooh, ooh. I'd never seen anything like that in the church. I was like, ooh. And pastor told him to shut up and sit down. <laughs> so a couple of the ushers come. And they drag the guy out. He's looking at me. I told him not to look at me. And off they go. And calm down. Calm down. It's going to be okay. So after it's all over, I come to find out that the guy was on a three-day alcohol binge. And he had come in thinking that we were serving real wine during the communion, and he couldn't handle it anymore that I was talking a little bit about the Bible. He wanted the wine to get there so he could do this with those little communion cups. <laughs> Much to his chagrin, because it was grape juice. <laughs> Although I will tell you, at an 8 a.m. service many years ago at a church in Orange at an undisclosed location <laughs> to protect the innocent and maybe not so innocent, one, one morning, it was an 8 a.m. service, and I remember the communion went around, and that grape juice, I think, had been in the church kitchen from about 1985, <laughs> because I took a drink of that, and I went, woo-hoo! Anyway. So when you think it can't happen, it can happen. <laughs> but that's about the most extreme one I've ever seen. But could it be that I might have an inner attitude towards a believing brother or sister who's sitting a few rows away? Could it be, I have unforgiveness in my heart, but I'm going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper and I'm going to make a proclamation about the love of Christ and anticipating his second coming and knowing that he took the leaven of my sin so I could be unleavened, but I'm going to sit there and harbor a grudge or say under my breath, that person over there. <laughs> or I'm going to make a class division. Or I'm going to talk about how they look or what family they come from. And I'm going to start doing stuff that is unworthy of a believer in Christ. This is why I say, when, when David prays, search me, I can categorize and compartmentalize my sin all day long. I could do it with the best of them. Well, uh, that's a little different because uh, is this category belongs to that category kind of thing. But that doesn't wash before God, especially if I've opened up my heart to him. Amen? Try me, O oh Lord. See if there's any hurtful way in me. All right, so... That's the backdrop. So let me add a I-O-N word here, examination. I gave you the four other words. Just look at verse 28. Do a little examination before you take the bread and drink the cup. If a man, a man should examine himself and so 
eat the bread and drink the cup. I don't think that you should be, you know, condemning yourself. I don't think that that's Paul's purpose here. But the warning in the rest of the verses basically says this, that God's judgment had fallen on the Corinthian congregation. You read these verses, Paul says some of them were sick and some of them the Lord had taken home to heaven because of their sin. This, this love feast for some of the Corinthian congregants had become a golden calf. And God said, I'm not putting up with it anymore. Now, I think these are very rare, extreme cases. But you know, in the first century church, Ananias and Sapphira, the Lord took them out. You know, that guy in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, I've handed him over to Satan. And so if we trifle with the living God and he warns us and we don't repent, then we're inviting his discipline into our lives. You could take that to the bank. If you won't repent of your sin and you know God has shown you something, you are inviting your father to chastise you. Now he'll do it because he loves you. But yet he will discipline the ones that he loves. Here's the remedy. If we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's verse 32. So there is a place for some examination here. I think sometimes when you hear preachers teach on this section, they overdo one aspect. They'll say, well, examine yourself before you. And, and you don't hear anything about, you know, that I should be giving thanks to God, that it's a celebration, that it's a proclamation, that it's a commemoration, that I anticipate. Yes, there's an examination piece. But don't overdo that either. Because if you start nitpicking yourself to death, then you'll never feel worthy to take these elements, right? You gotta rest in the forgiveness of Christ. If, if you are sensing that there's something like one of these th examples in your heart tonight, just do a little business with your father because the moment you confess your sin, he'll, he'll grant you what you need. He'll restore you, right? If you discipline yourself, he won't need to discipline you. Some of you are young here. If you came to your parent and admitted something you did wrong, and said, you know, I, I really feel bad. Give me whatever I need to get, you know, to teach me the lesson. Your, your parent's going to respond totally differently than if you're in total denial and rebellion. And God is a greater father than any human father or mother. I think you get the point. Father, as we come before you, we're anticipating Good Friday and thanking you for the ability to cry out, search me, O God, as David prayed Lord, we want to make this personal and not just about somebody else and not just be an observer casually. Um, we're here tonight because you've providentially called us to be here tonight. And before we come forward to receive these elements, I pray that we would have thankful, grateful hearts for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We would remember him, what he did for us. We will have thoughts to his sacrifice and his conquering sin and death at the cross. We will know that we're making a proclamation that we both believe and we're professing that Jesus is the gospel and we believe it. We're anticipating the coming fullness of the kingdom, his second coming, and we're doing some examination, Lord, as well. 
If there's any hurtful way in me, oh Lord, forgive me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Thank you that if you kept a record of my sin, I could never stand. But with you, there's forgiveness. Mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. All we need do is an honest assessment of our hearts before the king. And then come with gratitude. Grateful hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us so much. In your name.